Amen. Thank you, Mike. Morning, church. Happy New Year. It's going to be a good year. Now, I know TCU is playing tonight. Miracles happen. What? Tomorrow. This year. <laughs> National Championship. TCU. Miracles happen. That one totally bombed. Can I start over? Whatever. It's super good to see you. I mean that part. Like, super good to see you. Um, I haven't been here in three weeks. Missed Christmas Eve service. We had to cancel. And then Hallie and the boys and I already had vacation planned last Sunday. And so, like, I missed you. And, like, it's been really good just being with you today, seeing you. I'm encouraged and, uh, and, and just glad to be with you. I hope, hope you feel that way. Um, yeah, a couple of just calendar announcements real quick, and then we'll, we'll get into Hebrews 10. Um, this Wednesday night is um, our Wednesday worship, and we, we call attention to that because we only do it once a month, and it's easy to forget which Wednesday. That's this Wednesday, 6.30. Um, our kids will be over in the kids' building. They're relaunching the spring semester. Students will be relaunching uh, in the student center, and then adults will be meeting in here. And just a word about students. You know, we're without a student pastor right now, and if you have a student, I want you to know your students are in really good hands. Um, I've spent the last three or four weeks meeting with Jeremy and then also meeting with the team. Uh, we met this past Wednesday night. And I just have a lot of confidence that um, until we find God's person to lead that ministry, your students are in good hands. I've got two in there as well. feel that way. Uh, our students are in good hands. Uh, we may not be able to do everything that we would normally do in a spring semester. Uh, for example, our student ministry on Sunday mornings is just 11 o'clock service. We're not able to do both. That's okay. Um, but the volunteers who are serving your students are going to do a fantastic job. I just want you to hear that from me. Um, so they'll be relaunching this spring uh, semester this Wednesday. Adults will meet in here. And we've been allowing our elder mentees to preach. And, uh, and so if you come this Wednesday night, you're going to get to hear from one of our elder mentees who, I don't know if he's ever preached before, but he's never preached here. So it'll be his first time here for sure. Get to come hear from him, encourage him, be a part of what God's doing in his life. But then we always build into Wednesday night fellowship time. Like we our service is pretty short so that we have time to like intentionally bump into each other and do more than just say, how are you doing? Fine. Like we can actually stop and like dig in a little bit deeper. So I hope you'll come this Wednesday night for that. The other one, the other calendar announcement is at the end of the month, um, the last Sunday of January, we have an all member meeting. Um, I think it's at five o'clock. It is five o'clock. Look, I got it. Uh, five o'clock on the 29th and um, come be a part of that's our normal all-member meeting it's not like the last one where we had a bunch of surprise news this is like no our normal time to get together and we'll celebrate we'll look back over 2022 and celebrate God's faithfulness and then we'll talk about 2023 um, we'll also talk through some changes and transitions happening within staff and then give you updates so it's a really important meeting but if you don't mark your calendar I know what will happen the same thing happens to me right just blow right past it so if you want to mark your calendar for that right now go ahead um, all right, so we are going to, um, we're starting a new series today, walking through the vision of the church, and um, we do this every year at the beginning of the year. Um, one, it's just really good to remind ourselves um, what we're aiming at as a church, like what is the vision God has given us, um, but number two, it's important to remind ourselves that the vision that we have um, didn't come from like a think tank collaborative meeting God himself gave the church its mission and its vision. So our mission as a church, our vision is to make disciples for Jesus through gathering and worship, uh, growing together in biblical community, and then living out the mission in our everyday lives. And so we're going to spend three weeks going through that. And what's so important about that is that is all rooted in Scripture. Like that is what Jesus told the church to do. 
And so it's so important to just anchor ourselves to that vision every year, remind ourselves. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the significance of gathering and worship. So I'm going to just start with a rhetorical question. Why does this matter? Like right here, what are we doing right? Why does this matter? Like, start with why does it matter to you, but let's go bigger than that. Like, why does it matter in the universe that we're doing this? What's so significant about this space, this time, you, that makes this important? Like, what caused you to set your alarm? And maybe even some of you set your clothes out yesterday. Like, why did you intentionally show up today? As we think about our, our, our calling together in worship, what we're going to do today is we're going to try to kind of peek behind the curtains and look at the why. Like, why does this matter? Looking at a um, Pew Research poll, I don't do this often, but I thought it was pretty interesting what I saw this week. In 2008, so that's what, gosh, what, 15 years ago? So this data is like 15 years old. Uh, Pew Research uh, produced a report after surveying um, Americans, both inside and outside the church, here were some of the numbers. Uh, the report said this, that 82% of Americans say that religion is important or somewhat important to their lives. So like 8 out of 10 people that you run into at Walmart, if you ask them, is religion important to everyday life, would say yes. What's asked next is this, is do you actually believe in God? 91% of Americans, like 9 out of 10 people said they believe in God or a higher power or a spiritual being. 9 in 10 Americans said yes. When asked about the Bible, 63, 6 out of 10 Americans said that they believe that this is a sacred text. That's both inside and outside the church. 63 Six out of ten said the Bible. It's more than just an inspired word. It's more than just something that's interesting to read. It's actually a sacred text. And 74% of Americans believe in the afterlife. That something happens beyond this life. When asked about miracles, 79%, eight in ten people surveyed, believe that miracles still happen today that, that that kind of caught me off guard I'm like wow that's most of the people i run into at walmart believe in god and believe that this this book matters and like would say that religion is really important to their everyday life however when you get to the church attendance numbers something shifts something changes something causes us to go i wonder does this matter when asked about attending religious services once a week 39% of Americans attend religious services. And so I was like, well, yeah, but you, you asked a lot of non-Christians too. And what was sad is that among those who profess to be Christians, only 50% attend worship services at least once a week. And so we're left with the question, like, does this matter? Is this just an add-on to life that there's going to be some times this year I kind of need this, and there'll be other times where I don't need it. Does this actually matter? Well, when you read the New Testament, you read the Old Testament, you can see that God calling his people to, to gather together in worship is like, it's, it's stitched 
all throughout the stories of the Bible. From beginning to end, this seems to matter to God. And in the Old Testament, you had temple worship. You had this space where believers would gather, but kind of outside the temple, and they would bring some type of offering or sacrifice. And you had these holy men, these priests who would take that sacrifice inside the Holy of Holies, like beyond the veil to the place where God's presence was to offer your gifts to God. And then somehow vicariously, you would try to experience God through that man. And hopefully he would come out and tell you what God was like so you can know what God was like. And hopefully he would come out and say, hey, good news, God accepted your, your sacrifice, you're good. And, and that, that's how Old Testament worship took place. It was year after year after year after year, it went like that. And in the New Testament, we see that this idea of gathering together continues. Like in Acts 2.1, even before Pentecost, all the believers were together and were praying. And right after Pentecost, and Peter preaches and thousands become believers, they immediately devote themselves to this kind of thing. They continue meeting in the temple courts together and worshiping. We see Paul's letters to the church. It was just understood you're going to be meeting together. Matter of fact, in like Romans 14, the church was disputing over which day to meet. Some want to do Saturday, some want to do Sunday. And he's like, seriously, just pick a day. Like, the point isn't that you do it on this special day. The point is that you set aside a day each week and you worship. You rest from your work and you worship. Just pick a day. Later on in his letter to the church in Corinth, he talks about the collection of the saints. It would happen weekly. They would come together for worship. They would take a collection together. They called it the collection of the saints. You see Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, these young pastors, instructing them. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about um, prophecy and tongues in worship. So it was like understood that the church, the good people of God were going to continue worshiping. But probably the most explicit place I can think of in the New Testament is Hebrews 10. We're not only are we told that this matters, but we're actually instructed not to neglect this, not to forsake this. And I'll say this, most sermons I've heard preached about meeting together on a weekly basis for some form of gathering and worship will point to like Hebrews 10, 25, or maybe 19 through 25 and go, see, this matters. This week I was preparing for the sermon. I was like, I really want to know why this matters. If we're going to give our time to it, right? If we're going to give ourselves to meeting together, like I want to know. And what I realized as I read all of Hebrews 10 is that it's really important to kind of, if you want to know the why, you got to start in verse 1. Like we gotta, if we want to know why this matters to God, therefore why it should matter to us, we've got to start at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. So we're going to cover a lot of ground uh, this morning. I'm going to pick this up in uh, verse 1 of Hebrews 10. For since the law was or has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's a really interesting way for the author of Hebrews to describe the Old Testament law as a shadow of the good things to come. And what we're going to see here in Hebrews 10 is this contrast between not only Old Testament worship versus New Testament worship. We're going to see the, the, kind of the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we're going to see where the Old Law of the Old Testament, while it had purpose, 
didn't fulfill everything that God wanted for us. And so here, what's, what, the way the author describes it is as a shadow. So like we think about what's the purpose of the law? There are things that haven't changed about the law. Just to make sure you're aware of this. It's still wrong to murder. Okay, so when God said, thou shall not murder, the law of the old covenant, it's still wrong to murder, okay? It's still wrong to steal and commit adultery and like all those things. The moral law is still the same. But what's being discussed here is really the Levitical law. This was the part of the law that described how we worship. The sacrifices that were brought in and the order to those sacrifices. And, and so when we look back on the Old Testament, we go, well, that, what was going on there? What was God doing with all that? Well, the first thing God was doing is he was showing the people that it matters. When you violate his commandments and sin against him, it matters. Like, think about that. So God said, hey, if you've sinned, I need you to grab one of your animals and pick out a really good one and bring it to church with you. And did anybody bring an animal to church today, by the way? That's, that was common practice. And not only that, you would actually slaughter the animal. So imagine how that would grab your attention every time it happens. Like, there's this reminder as this animal draws its last breath, you're like, man, my sin matters. Like, this is a big deal to God. But there was a second thing happening year after year, and that's just what verse 1 is talking about, is that the law was a shadow of the good things to come. That even though those sacrifices, those routines, those rituals weren't actually doing the trick, they weren't changing anybody, transforming anybody, restoring anybody, every time an animal was slaughtered, it was a foreshadowing of something good that was on its way. And so while there was a sense of like, oh, that was painful. Oh, but that didn't do anything. I still feel guilty. I'm going home from church feeling no better about myself. In some way, it created this longing, right, this expectation that something good was on its way. It was a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And then we read this, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually being offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So when we sin, A, our conscience becomes guilty. You familiar with that feeling? It's kind of icky, isn't it? To feel guilt, to know I did something wrong is a horrible feeling. Imagine if you had no way to remedy that. You just had to live always feeling that way. Some of you may be sitting here going, that's me today, I, I, I need to know. Okay, so there's this guilty conscience, but there's also a broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so both need to be addressed. That's what the author's saying. is like those sacrifices of the Old Testament, while they got our attention and kind of created this expectation something better was on the way, it didn't do anything to clear our conscience or restore our relationship with God. I felt no more closer to Him than I did yesterday. And then continuing, verse 2 says this, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Something about that routine every year was just kind of indirectly saying, hey, it didn't work last year. You do it again. Hey, it didn't work. If it would have worked, they could have ceased to offer them. Since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
to the book of Hebrews is a beautiful connection between the Old and New Testament. And what's being described here is this, the Old Testament style of worship, gathering together, the, really kind of the climax of it all was the slaughtering of animals. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, that didn't do any good for us. We needed something better. So verse, seven, or verse five says, well, consequently then, when Christ came into the world, like we just sang about, I believe, believe in the virgin birth, the word became flesh for my sin and death, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. That is Jesus the Son speaking to the Father. Okay, so think of it in that context. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And we'll come back to this at the end. Jesus is saying to the Father, hey, these sacrifices you have not desired. Verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So even though there was purpose in the Old Testament law and the rituals of worship and sacrifice, it didn't ultimately bring pleasure to his father. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now one of the things we're going to talk about today um, is the, are the ideas of like routines and rituals, okay? Now, often in the church when we use those two words, we use them in a negative context. Like we don't want this to just become routine, right? We don't want to just do rituals, right? And so when we look at the Old Testament worship, it was full of routines and rituals. We're going to talk about that today. And are there really good routines and rituals that we can practice? Some of you have come in today and you're like one weekend on your uh, New Year's resolutions and your new year's resolutions are new routines right dry january or white out january or go to the gym every day january or whatever it is right you're, you're starting these new habits these new routines hoping they will enhance your life or give you life and so we look at the old testament routines we go well, that didn't work so is that it we just needed no routines no rituals no common practices we'll pick this up in verse eight Well, when he said above, and this is speaking of Jesus, you have desired, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, speaking of Jesus, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. So what Jesus does is he doesn't come to change the morality of the law, but he changes the Levitical law. This Levitical law that was a shadow of the good things to come that really didn't work to change the hearts of worshipers. What Jesus does is he does away with that order, but he doesn't replace it with chaos. He replaces it with a new order a new way of worshiping, a new way of doing things. This is what he's speaking about even in the upper room in communion with the disciples. And he says, this is the cup of my blood of the new covenant, a new way to worship, a new experience with the Father. And so he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now, verse 11, we kind of go back to Old Testament worship and the order of worship. Verse 11 uh, says this, and 
every priest stands daily at his service. So it's this imagery of the Old Testament. The priest shows up for his services every day. He's wearing the robes. He's running the plays. He's doing all the rituals and practices required. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's a really important statement. Why didn't you bring your goat to church today? God still requires blood be shed for the forgiveness of sins. The author's telling us that what Jesus did when he died and he resurrected and ascended back to the right hand of God, he didn't have to come back and do it again the next year. And then again the next year. Why? Because his sacrifice was sufficient. It did what the old sacrifices couldn't do. What couldn't they do? Take away sins and restore relationships. So when Jesus was done with his sacrifice, with confidence, Father, I'm ready. I don't need to hang around here and die again. Like, my sacrifice is enough. Sins can now be forgiven and relationships can now be restored. Everything that the Old Testament law promised but couldn't deliver has been delivered. Yeah, that's worth celebrating. And so... Now he is at the right hand of the Father, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Man, that is a supernatural, miraculous phrase. Through his once and for all sacrifice, he's doing something. He's perfecting. Who? Us. Do you know that? God is perfecting you, sanctifying you, making you holy, doing for you what you can't do for yourselves. If you're still practicing the Old Testament plays, it won't work. Like if you're here today as part of your spiritual routine, hoping that it will restore your relationship with God, that somehow he will look down upon you as a dad and go, okay, now I'm proud of you. Now I accept you. You're going to miss. Like these, if you're just coming as a spiritual routine and ritual, it won't make you clean and it won't restore a relationship with God. It's only through this single offering sacrifice that that can happen. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit, who also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Show of hands if you've heard some version of that Bible verse before. A lot of us, yeah. The words of God is now written on our hearts and our minds. I'll say this. I heard that verse taught and preached countless times before I ever went back to the book of Hebrews and read the whole chapter. Because the temptation is to come out of there and go, okay, now God's word his law is written on my heart on my mind i don't need the bible anymore and i don't need the church anymore it's me and god right you may have heard some version of that that's how i was taught that you don't need to study the bible god's law is written on your heart you put it in context though and it's different 
This is what God is doing in us. He has written his law on our hearts and on our minds. What I perceive that to mean is not that it's just a transfer of information, but now I know why it matters. Like, it's on my heart. They care about the things of God. Yes, they're just written on pages here, but these words are also written on my heart and on my mind. They impact how I think, how I see the world, how I feel, how I feel about God. And then he adds, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Okay, so we can begin to wrap our minds around the theological significance of Jesus' death here. Okay, so for hundreds, thousands of years, the people of God worshipped, and they ran the same plays every week, every year, and they never worked. Nobody's conscience ever got cleansed. Nobody's relationship with God got restored. Remember, the only person who got to experience the presence of God was who? The priest. And you know, one of the practices was to tie a rope around the priest's leg in case he went into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was, and for whatever reason, he had unconfessed sin and God struck him down dead. You know that like every rule is because it actually happened once. Now, there was a time where the priest goes in, they're like, did y'all hear that loud noise? Yeah. Shouldn't he be out by now? Nah, it's just, it's just taking a little longer. Okay. Hey, should somebody go check? I'm not going. <laughs> like, who's going to go get him? You know what? We need to tie a rope around his guy's leg next year. So we'll have a way to get him out because we can't go in. We can't go in where? Into the presence of God. Like, that's what was being veiled, was the holy powerful presence of God and so you didn't get that you didn't get to experience and do relationship with God what Adam and Eve had in the garden the people of God didn't have but something's available to us now I'm going to think a minute about routines and rituals I don't think the problem was the routines and the rituals I think the problem was the quality of the sacrifice we still have routines and rituals. Those aren't bad words in the church. Matter of fact, God embedded routine into creation. He created the universe in six days and rested on the seventh. And then he told us, what? Now you go do the same. That weekly rhythm was designed by God before the fall. Like when he was placing our solar system amidst the galaxies and he knew the right circumference of of the earth's rotation and orbit around the sun and the spin and he set it all up to have a weekly routine like god's idea his design here so routines are part of living in this universe that god created they're not bad things routines it's, are these are the routines are this a sequence of actions that are regularly followed the problem wasn't that they had routines. The problem is that they had a wrong sacrifice. But now we have the once and for all right sacrifice. And so we still have routines. The problem wasn't the rituals. What's a ritual? It's a religious activity or ceremony consisting of a series of actions performed according to a prescribed order. You know that God still pre prescribes rituals for us today? You're actually practicing one of those right now. What are the prescribed rituals of the church? We'll start with fellowship. See, that was, that's a prescribed spiritual ritual 
And when you show up on Sunday as a human being, as a fellow saint, and you stop to connect with somebody in fellowship and koinonia, you're practicing a spiritual discipline and, and a spiritual ritual. How about singing songs? Colossians 3.16. Teach and admonish one another and do what? Oh, sing. Hymns and spiritual songs. Prayer. Prayer isn't just the segue to get in and out of a sermon or in and out of a service. Let's just close our eyes in prayer so we can sneak some people out on the stage and sneak some people off. No, like Acts 2, the early church, they were devoted from the beginning to prayer. It was one of their spiritual rituals. And sometimes they would do something like the Lord's Prayer where they all said the same thing together, kind of a liturgy, and other times it was more individual prayer. But prayer is a ritual of the church. Preaching, hearing of the word. Like what we're doing right now has always been a part of church. From Acts 2 forward, they were devoted to the apostles' teachings, the hearing, the preaching, the hearing of God's word. Communion. And we've talked about that here at Solid Rock. And some of you have been around long enough to, to remember when we would do communion like once a quarter every three or four months. Some of you may have been at churches that actually practice communion every Sunday, and we do it once a month here. It's not clear, you know, how frequently we should do it, but what is clear is that it should be one of our spiritual routines. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's from Jesus himself, and Paul gives instructions around communion. We know it's one of the rituals of the church, baptism. We're celebrating 20 baptisms last year. That's awesome. Baptism is a spiritual routine. We didn't come up with that. Like that, that's been around as long as the church has been around. The thousands of people who got saved at Pentecost were baptized. That's a spiritual ritual that God has given to the church to do these rituals. They will bring life. So I think it helps to then talk about the other R word, the rut. Because I think when we talk about routines and rituals sometimes, when we talk about them in a negative light, what we're actually talking about is what's referred to as a rut. If you've ever like lived in the country or driven in the country, you know what a rut is. Um, a rut is this track in the ground, whether it's a walking path or you've driven a truck through and, and then the mud dries and it gets, and then you drive through it again, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where you can't get the vehicle to not drive in the rut. We were um, in the Philippines six years ago, seven years ago, and the, the village we would go to was 55 kilometers off the beaten path, and we would take motorcycles. And uh, it's hard to describe the setup, but it's this little motorcycle, like a 125, if you're a motorcycle rider, had these wooden slats on the side, which would hold a grown man and all their luggage, and you've got like this 115-pound Filipino man who's like a little guy, carrying about 800 pounds of human flesh and gear. And it wasn't too bad when things were dry, but if it had been raining, which it often does in the rainforest, um, there's a, there was a rut for 55 kilometers. And wherever the rut went, the bike went. Wherever the bike went, you went. And it was jarring, like white knuckle jarring. But right, if the rut goes this way, the bike goes this way. 
And so sometimes our spiritual routines that are meant to give us life can become ruts. A rut is, by definition, it's a habit or pattern of behavior that has become dull or unproductive. It no longer gives life, and it's hard to change. That's what a rut is. The spiritual routines of God, the spiritual rituals of God are meant to give us life, but ruts take life. So now we're at the last few verses leading up to don't neglect worshiping together, verse 19. So verse 19, we read this, therefore, that's why it's important we read the first 18 verses. Like, therefore what? Well, because all this is true, because Jesus has come as the once and for all sacrifice to do what the sacrifice of bulls and goats couldn't do, therefore, brothers, I love this part of the passage. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Do you understand how dramatic of a change that is? Nobody had confidence to enter the holy places before Jesus died. That's why they tied a rope onto the priest, and that's why the rest of us didn't go in. So not only is that fear gone, it's been replaced with confidence, boldness to actually enter into the holy place, the place where God's presence is. So because all this is true now, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. So if you remember the way the temple was structured, the holy of holies, that space where the priest would go and encounter the presence of God, it was, it was shielded from the people by this thick curtain. If you remember at the death of Jesus, that curtain is torn top to bottom. Well, that real tearing of the curtain was symbolic um, of this idea that now we've been invited. The curtain's now torn and moved and opened up and we can go, we can go in. But I don't want to skip over the how. That this new way is opened up through us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We think about the tearing of the flesh of Jesus, the infliction of pain on the Son of God. That's what's opening up this curtain for us. We think about, does this matter to God? What we now have as a church. Let me just say, as a dad, it absolutely matters because of what it cost him. This is available to you and me to do every week. We've been called to do it. Because the Son of God died. His flesh was torn. I got two boys. Their pain matters to me. If you doubt it, be the source of infliction and you'll find out quickly. Seriously. Moms, dads, right? Something happens. God the Father sent his son to be inflicted, to experience pain, torture, suffering, and die. Does this matter to God? You better believe it does. It absolutely matters. God, does it matter that we go to church together and we experience your presence? Does that matter? And God's like, yeah, my son's flesh was torn for that. It absolutely matters. This new way was opened up for us by the tearing of his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
Who's this great priest? That's Jesus. You don't need me to go in or in for you. You better tie two or three ropes. Jesus doesn't need a rope. He gets to go into the presence of God boldly and confidently, and he turns and he invites us in. Come on, I opened up the way. You can have the Father. Come, let's go to the Father. He is our great priest. So now, verse 22 begins the let us part. So let us draw near. This is not a solo act. This is an us thing. Where two or three gather in his name, there he is. You can experience the presence of God in two distinct and powerful ways as a believer. One is this, if you're in Christ, you now have his spirit dwelling in you. You have access to his presence on a daily basis. While you sleep, you are encountering the presence of God internally. And the second distinct way is that we as his children gather in his name. So yes, you could do life just you and Jesus, and you're going to be missing out on a lot of what he has not just offered to you, but what he's died to offer to you and to me. And so we have this great priest, so let us then draw near. Why wouldn't we draw near? Why wouldn't we do this? Let us draw near. With a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Why wouldn't we draw near? Next, let us. Let us then hold fast the confession of our hope. If you stop there, it's this idea of like, grab a hold of it and don't let go. We do this with a lot of things in life. We call it white knuckling. Grab a hold and don't let go. And if we're not careful, we'll read that and go, okay, now that I'm in, I've got to hang on. I can't dare loosen my grip on all this good stuff I have in Christ or I'll, I'll lose it, right? And so a quick story. I uh, did this on the cuff in the last service. I didn't finish the story and I left people with some anxiety. So I'm gonna try to finish it for you. Um, so the best kind of illustration I can think about what's being described here is this. And when I was you know, 15, 16 year, years old, I was a risk taker. And I really enjoyed the adrenaline that comes from being up next to the edge of danger and then, surviving it and I worked for a company and my boss was a risk taker horrible combination uh, he, he, uh, he had a friend Rick and Rick uh, and they loved to risk things and they told me a story once about how when they were younger out in West Texas they had heard about this new invention called the parasail okay, which is distinctly different from a parachute I'll explain why in a second it's there, it was like the, the 80s you know, Magnum P.I. and Paracels. It's like, well, we don't have a lake. We don't have a parasail, but they found a parachute at a garage sale. And like, well, I got a Jeep, and they tied it onto a Jeep. They told me this story about how they were like, hey, I'll do it if you do it, and this is going to be great. Well, the difference between a parasail and a parachute is that a parasail has a hole in the top that's meant to let air through. A parachute only traps air. And it gets really violent if something's pulling it. So they took off, and the parachute goes way up in the air, and then it slams the guy in the ground, breaks his legs. Fast forward about 15 years. I'm working for one of these guys, and one of them goes to a garage sale and finds a parasail. And so he's like, this will be a great idea, finally. So Rick calls Rick. I got a parasail. Great. And one of them says to me, hey, you're 15, 16, and you love taking risks. You want to go with us? I'm like, heck yeah. So we go out to Weatherford Lake, 
which is a really big pond. And um, we went to the beach, which is a pile of sand next to some murky water with a little kind of like a ski boat, just kind of your average ski boat. And they have this parasail kind of pulling it out of the box from the garage sale, and they get um, a 200-foot um, inner tube rope with the hooks on the end. Okay, so there's no instructions. There's no YouTube. There's no instructor. Just three dumb guys. And so the first guy, the, the adult that I worked for, he's like, hey, let me go first because something bad is going to happen. What's happened to me? Okay. So we go, and we, he's running on the beach, and he takes off, and he goes up, and they make a quick turnaround and come right back, and we're like, he lands it. We're like, ah, it worked. And so I want to go. So now I'm going next. So if you're at the beach at Weatherford Lake, the lake kind of stretches out to the left, back to the northwest, and uh, we're off and running. And I'm up in the air, okay? I'm doing this whole parasail thing, and it's working. And so we're like, we're going to do a full run around the lake now. Like, let's give this guy a ride. And so we go down to the end of the lake, um, down to where it gets shallow, and we turn to come back to the south. And when we did, we head first into a south wind. And so now this parasail begins to, like, really fill up with air, and it starts pulling the boat back. Like, you can hear the engine laboring. And the next thing you know is you can hear the, I'm going, like, I'm literally coming up over the boat, about 200 feet in the air, in this parasail. And you can begin to hear the engine spinning fast because it's lifting the boat out of the back of the water. And about that time, the rope snaps with the noise that only a high-tension rope can make when it snaps. I'm 200 feet in the air. You want to talk about holding fast? I was holding fast. And that parasail went up before it started coming down. I don't know how long it took to get to the water, but it took long enough for me to start losing my grip. Like I couldn't hang on any longer and I had to loosen my grip. And what I realized about 30 feet before I hit the water was, oh, I can actually let go. This parasail has me. And here's the part I left off. And then I gently was lowered to the water by this parasail. The parasail drifted into the water and I got back in the boat and they were laughing their heads off. We were just told to hold fast to our confession because Christ has done all this for us. He's opened up this way for us to experience the presence of the Father. Hold fast to your confession. Why? For he who promised is faithful. There is this thing that stirs in you when you find Christ that says, I want to take hold of this and I don't want to let go. And there are going to be days when your grip begins to get tired. When you're like, I don't know that I have enough faith to hold on but you're going to get to relax your hands and realize that it's actually Jesus who has you. That's what's being described here. Hold fast to your confession because he who has you is faithful. So let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider, verse 24, how to stir one another up to love and good works. God wants good works and love to come out of your life and he wants us to stir that up in one another so how do we do this by verse 25 not neglecting to meet together evidently neglecting attending worship together weekly was not just a 21st century issue already in the first century just decades since the resurrection the church had begun to forsake getting together they had begun to say to themselves does this really matter Let's miss one week and see what happens, and they miss a week and go, well, I don't, 
nothing bad happened. I guess we can do it again, and I'll just go to church when I need a little pick-me-up. And so the author of Hebrews says, because this is true, because of all that Christ has done and all that we now have access to and all that this cost God's son, let's not forsake meeting together. Let's not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but instead let's encourage one another. Listen to this. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, which means this, in increasing measure, the closer and closer we get to the return of Christ. So what I experienced with you today, the desire I have to be with you in the presence of God today, hopefully next Sunday, it'll even increase more. And it'll even increase more. And it'll even, as we draw near together and experience the presence of God together that heals and restores our relationship with him and others, that clears our conscience from guilt, as we experience this together week after week, it doesn't become dull and unproductive like a rut, but these spiritual routines give us life. And next Sunday, we'll be more excited. Imagine if you could do that in your New Year's resolutions. We start with excitement and we, it, right, it does this. This is a description of the opposite. In increasing measure, all the more as we see the day drawing near. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to end here. This series that we're in, as we talk about church vision, it's really not about vision. It's not about the vision of solid rock as much as it is this. It's a series about how we were designed to function and flourish in the world. We're not inviting you to join us in our ruts. But we are inviting you as part of this church to join us in our spiritual routines and rituals that give life. You were designed together with the saints of God in a regular weekly routine of worship. It's God's design. And that we are not called to live life in the rut of mindless, heartless, unproductive routines. Instead, we are called to live life in the routines of life-giving rituals that lead to a flourishing life in Christ. You and I are called to worship with other believers on a consistent basis. Listen to this, because that's what Jesus died for. So here's the question again. Does this matter? Let me ask you this. Does the blood of Jesus matter? Because that, that's what it costs God so we could have this. Think of it that way. Does this matter? Yes, because this is what God sent his son to give us. I want to end with a few questions for us to think about. Can you think of a time when you were in a spiritual rut? Worship for you felt like, like a rut. Maybe where you are today. It's okay. We're not mad at you. I'm glad you're here. There's hope. Have you experienced that? Are you experiencing that right now? We're just... All your spiritual routines just feel like a rut, lifeless, unproductive. Have you experienced this? Have you ever encountered God in an unexpected way just by simply doing the spiritual routines week after week? Whether that's your daily time with the Lord or it's in here, you like get three words into a song and the Holy Spirit crushes you and you're crying. You're like, well, I didn't expect that to happen. I was just standing to sing and look at that, what God's doing. Like, have you experienced that where God's caught you off guard? You're just doing the, in obedience and faith, doing the thing he called you to do and it's like, whoa, he shows up and like, catches you off guard. How do biblical rituals encourage and give life to your relationship with God? Think about that. 
What does communion mean to you? What does singing a baptism mean to you? What does singing the songs mean to you? How does that give you life? What steps could you take this week to get out of those spiritual ruts, to practice life-giving spiritual routines and biblical rituals? I'll, I'll give you the first step to tell the truth. We don't need you to have it together here, okay? It's not a prerequisite to getting a hug and a high five. You get those anyway. Those are free. Tell the truth. Man, my relationship with God just feels lifeless. I hate saying that. I hate that that came out, but that's where I am. First step is tell the truth. Grab a prayer partner, grab a pastor, grab an elder, and say, I'm struggling right now. Life, my spiritual life is a rut at best. What other steps can you take in addition to that? Phone a friend. Let somebody else in on it. And then finally, how does this Hebrews 10 passage encourage or convict or both you to become more committed to gathering in worship with other believers? We don't want you here next week because you made a New Year's resolution. Whew, there, I said it. It was a long sermon just to say that. Go get them. We want you here next week because Jesus paid a price for you to be here next week because this matters to God. And because if you'll come in in faith and obedience and practice the spiritual routines, it will give you life. I hope I see you back next week. So how does this encourage or convict you to become more committed to gathering and worship with other believers as a consistent part of your weekly routine? Okay? I want to land there and pray for us. As we wrap up our services like we always do, we'll have our worship team will lead us in some singing. If you want to stand and just throw your voice in with the saints, I invite you to do that you want to practice that spiritual ritual with us if you need to spend some time in prayer like stay seated you can do that if you want to grab a prayer partner we'll have prayer partners on the sides grab them if you want to grab an elder you can do that as well and the point is this we want to we want to spend time now just kind of like letting the holy spirit move and work and so we want to do that i want to invite you to do that with me i'm going to pray to that end if you're here today and you're not a christian you're like man i this all sounds foreign to me please 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 come have a conversation and just tell the truth, where are you at? Let us just tell you about how to have a relationship with Christ that gives life, okay? Let's pray together. Worship team will come out. Father, thank you for this passage today. God, although we and our humanity can never fully comprehend either the expense paid through Jesus' sacrifice nor the benefit of being able to access your glorious presence, like, it's amazing, but yet we can't fully comprehend it. Thank you for today just like kind of pulling the veil back for us to see God, the cost of Jesus' flesh, to see that what Jesus has done is not only better than the bulls and the goats, but it's actually, it works. It's enough. So much so that he only had to do it once. And so today as we stand to sing, Christ, we do want you to be magnified. We, we want you to not only be the center of our lives, but the center of this church. And we want to worship you now and experience your presence together now. And Father, anybody who doesn't know you, um, just right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we're praying for a miracle. You would open eyes and invite and draw people to yourself. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.